hear the word of God as I read the first 14 verses of this beautiful epistle. Some have said that Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans is the clearest expression of the gospel. If that is so, then Ephesians is surely the most majestic expression of the gospel. Hear the word of God, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's seek God's help for the ministry of his word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we bow in your presence, and we do so giving thanks for this, your eternal word. And I pray, Father, that you would be pleased this evening to neutralize all the deficiencies and adequacies of your servant and that you would be pleased through the power of your spirit to use this word to encourage the hearts of these your people. Lord, speak to us, we pray, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I've been thinking that for some time, it might be good for us to look a little bit at what we in seminary call ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and some thoughts about the church. And having given some thought about that for some time now, I thought it would be good 
helpful for us to uh, spend some time. Uh, I don't know how this will be. be. might be somewhat of a series that the Lord gives us grace to, to speak on the subject. But I do think that there is very little understood in the church at large today concerning the doctrine of the church. And I say it's one of the greatest of all questions above all for this particular reason. In chapter 5 and verse 25 of his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. It is for the church that Christ offered himself as a bloody sacrifice. It was for the church that he was born into the world, that he might be for the church, that sacrifice, that fragrant offering which would be well-pleasing to God, in order that ultimately he might present the church to himself as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation 21, verse 2. Clearly, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the church has astonishing importance. And so I think it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves the question, what is the church for which and for whom the Lord Jesus died? And many people have sought to answer that question in many ways. One way that it's been answered that has surfaced is in a linguistic way. That is, the church in the New Testament is defined by the word ecclesia, or in the Latin, ecclesia. And that Greek word is a compound word. It simply comes from two words, the preposition in the Greek ek, which means out or from, and the verb kaleo. And so put together, we have the church ecclesia. So the church is a called out people. Well, that is no doubt true. It is abundantly true, but it's more probably true that by the time of the New Testament, the word ecclesia no longer had that precise and particular meaning. It simply meant an assembly or a congregation of people. And that, of course, is the reason why it is almost always used to translate the Old Testament phrase, the congregation of Jehovah, the kahal of Jehovah. It is the congregation of the Lord. And so the church is the congregation of God, the assembly of God. Now that in itself may not appear to teach us too much, but it does teach us at least two things. It teaches us, first of all, that the church is the Lord's. It belongs to Him. The church is the possession of Jehovah God. It is His possession. But the second basic thing that it tells us is this. That the people of God are a corporate God. Or a corporate people. That the believing life, the believing life is, was never intended by God. Never intended to be lived in some kind of solitary isolation. Lone Ranger Christianity is a concept that is utterly foreign and alien to Holy Scripture. We're not permitted to go it alone in the Christian life. 
when we're regenerated by the new birth, we, you and I, are born into the people of God. Now we live, you and I, in a world that lives unto itself. Evangelical Christianity, and I'm speaking in the broad sense at this moment, the Christian life has kind of been reduced to atomized individualism. We live unto ourselves. If you like it, do it. If you don't like it, then don't do it. If you fancy it, go for it. If you don't fancy it, don't. If, it, if going to church meets a need, go. If it doesn't meet a need, don't bother. In other words, that kind of mentality looks at the church as simply existing to service the felt needs of those in attendance. But dear people, when you read the scriptures, you find that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is far more glorious, far more exalted, more altogether out of this world than we could ever begin to imagine. And to belong visibly and personally to that great company of people that are bound for the presence of God and to, for whom the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life's blood is to mark you out as one of the most blessed and privileged and favored people in this world. All our thinking about the church as with any other subject of theology. All of our thinking should begin where the Bible begins. And so this evening, I simply want us to notice one basic truth expressed, mind you, in about three different ways. But basically, it's the same truth. The church, before it is anything else, it is foundationally and fundamentally a chosen people. The church is a chosen people. Now I hardly need, I hope, to ransack the scriptures to show you that. Let me just mention a few passages. In the first letter of Peter, chapter 2, Peter writes, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And then writing to the church at Colossae, in Colossians 3, Paul speaks, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. And our Lord Jesus Christ in the 15th chapter of the gospel according to John said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And then that remarkable statement of our Savior in what has come to be known as part of his high priestly prayer in the 17th chapter of the gospel of John, verses 1 through 2, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. 
And what these verses and many others impress upon us is simply this. The church is not a human institution. That's being emphasized time and time again in the Holy Scripture. Now to be sure, it has a human face. It has an earthly identity. The church has a local address to be sure, but its origin is not of this world. And I don't think we see that any clearer than we do in Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 3 through 4. Now Paul clearly has in particular view here Not the universal church, mind you, but the local congregation of Jesus Christ. For he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. The church, it has a local face. It has a local address. And he's writing to a congregation of Jesus Christ located in what is now modern day Turkey. And he has in particular view here. Not the universal church, but a local congregation. And I think it's very remarkable, indeed striking, that Paul can use, you'll notice, the precise same language to describe the local congregation as he does the universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, we read in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, signed and sealed in Christian baptism, we are brought into one body. And he's speaking there very clearly, I think, of the body of Christ, the chosen of God. But then in verse 27, he says, Now you, that is you Corinthians, are the body of Christ and members individually. So he's able to use the same language to identify a local congregation of Jesus Christ as he is to identify the universal church or the Catholic church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not for one moment are we to think, you and I, that Paul imagines that everyone who belongs to a congregation necessarily belongs to belongs to that elect company of God, the universal church in all the earth. After all, in Romans chapter 9, where Paul reflects upon the unbelief of the nation of Israel, he recognizes that Israel is the congregation of God, but that Israel is littered with unbelief. And he writes, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, he says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they're of the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. In essence, the Apostle Paul says, do you not know that God has this elect body within that body which bears his name. And what I think we're to understand is that the local church is called by God and 
planted in the world by Christ to be a mirrored reflection. Yes, it's awful, very often a muddied reflection, as we shall see maybe in the future with an admixture of unbelief at the heart of it. But nonetheless, the church is to be a mirrored reflection of the true church of God's elect in the world. And the Apostle Paul then tells us three things here about this chosen people. He tells us that the church is a sovereignly chosen people. He tells us secondly that the church has been chosen sovereignly in Christ. That our union with Christ has its very taproots in eternity. And he tells us thirdly that the church has been chosen sovereignly in Christ to be holy and blameless before him in love. Very quickly then, let's look at these. First of all, he tells us that the church is a sovereignly chosen people. Look at how Paul underscores verse 4. Just as he chose us in him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of of the world. Before the world was, we're told God set apart a people to be his treasured possession. Before the world was, God chose a people to be his very own. Now, I've never yet met a Christian who denies that. After all, how can you deny something that the Bible states very clearly? But I have met many Christians who argue that God chose sinners on the basis of their merits. That is to say that God foresaw that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that because of their faith and their good works or whatever, He then elected them to be chosen to be His. What are we to make of that? What? What would base the choice of God, not on his own freedom to choose, but on whatever he pleases? But to make that rest upon the basis of human faith and goodness? Oh, there is much we could say, but we could remind people of what the apostle writes again in Romans chapter 9. Rebecca's children had one and the same father, Isaac, yet for the children not yet having been born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. What is faith? What is this faith that unites us, you and I, to the Lord Jesus Christ? It is, says Paul in Ephesians 2, the gift of God. The faith by which we lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ is a sovereign. It is by the grace of a sovereign God. We're not born with it. It is not native to us. It isn't some sixth faculty of the soul, so to speak, that we can muster up and suddenly crank into action and embrace God on our own. It is, says Paul, Ephesians 2, 8, the gift of God, that we have faith at all with which to embrace and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the good pleasure of a sovereign Sovereign, gracious, 
God. Now, my friends, if we could just grasp this in all of its reality, it would obliterate all creature confidence and pride from our lives. It would cut us down to size. It would consume us with wonder with, with wonder and with adoring hearts of grateful gratitude, of, of adoring gratitude that we would ever choose, that God would ever choose such as the likes of us. I know one man who said he had experienced rejection all his life, but the thought that Christ had chose him to be one of his was one of the most comforting verses he had ever read in all of Scripture. The church is God's sovereignly chosen people. But secondly, God tells us the church was sovereignly chosen in Christ, for He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. There Paul is telling us that our union with Christ has its taproots in eternity itself. What does Paul mean there? Well, you glance down to verse 13. You notice that Paul tells us, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, there's union again, in whom also having believed. And he is telling us that there's this faith union with Jesus Christ, that we're outside of Christ until we believe in Christ. In other words, our union with with Christ has its taproots in eternity, but it comes to fruition in time. That's why the Apostle Paul likewise can write in Romans chapter 16 and verse 7 to some of his brethren whom he says were in Christ before me. And that makes it somewhat individual, does it not? There's no denying that. And here is what theologians wisely and rightly call believers' federal or covenant union with Jesus Christ. And that is so important. And that is a great doctrine of the Word of God. But then I want you to see in the third and final place, the church was sovereignly chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless before Him in love. And that's what Paul develops in the fifth chapter of this same epistle. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. What a statement. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? To make her holy. Not only to justify her, to declare her righteous, but also to make her righteous. To be holy. To be holy. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. This radiant bride. To think that our marriages are to be a miniature reflection of the relationship that Christ bears to his church. It's beautifully put 
in what I read as our call to worship tonight, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure. And the Old Testament word there is skula. It's a word that almost defies translation. But it's a term of endearment that God has for his people. How he regards them as his special treasured possession above all the people's on the face of the earth, chosen to be the Lord's, chosen not to live unto ourselves. How utterly contradictory it is to imagine that we're living a Christian life where we simply live unto ourselves. And then that second term he mentions, blameless. It has more of the idea of moral purity without defect, or perhaps I've, I've wondered even better, it means undivided allegiance, unrivaled affection for Christ. There's that very striking statement which we read in the 24th Psalm. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and the pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And what I think we see there is that purity, purity in its essence has to do with an undivided heart. An undivided heart chosen to be holy and without blame. But, and I close with this tonight, as the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it in the 25th chapter. The purest of churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. And ultimately, God alone knows those who are His. But that is no excuse for the church not seeking by God's grace to live up to its calling in this world. To be a mirror in time and space of that ultimate glorious company of people who will surround the throne of God throughout all eternity, giving praise to Him. And if that is true, then how should we live? We should live, first of all, with a thankful, adoring gratitude. We should never be able to get over the wonder, the sheer wonder that God would ever have chose such a filthy, rotten sinner like me. That should be the thought in the heart of every godly individual. And will we not sing throughout all eternity, Why, O oh Lord, such love to me? You say, oh, but Christ is the covenant head that explains it. But still, why me? Why not the boy who grew up next door to me and committed suicide? Why me and not him? Am I any better? No, I'm just as wicked a sinner as that little boy was. It's because God pleased so to do.
for many people, that's considered a horrible doctrine. Mickey and I, in another context, were discussing this this morning. But to the Christian believer, it is the most wonderful of all doctrines because without it, no one would be saved. And we should live in humble, glad obedience, secondly, because we have been united to the servant of the Lord. And thirdly, we should live in humble, certain confidence because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So the church is a chosen people. May God help us to understand something of this immense privilege that is ours, of belonging through faith to Jesus Christ and to that great company of people who are the congregation of God. Let us pray.